Today's scripture reading is going to come from 1 Samuel. We're going to read the first verse together, and then we're going to skip over a few verses and read verses 6 through 10 together. If you don't have a pew Bible, or if you don't have a Bible with you, you can use a pew Bible there in front of you. Page number is on the screen for the pew Bible. Again, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Starting in verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil, olive oil, and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Verse 6. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait there seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When he and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in with their prophesying. This is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Quick note here. uh, I misspoke last week. We do not have Kingdom Kids today. We are now on the summer rotation. So today, no Kingdom Kids. Next week, we will have Kingdom Kids. And that is a ministry for those who are... Aged out of our nursery at four years old through second graders. And normally they'd have a chance to learn and worship at their level next door in our, well, normally it's in our education education building. Now it's going to be in the CLC, our Christian Life Center over here. So that will be next week. Okay, so just to clarify that, my wife told me who's in charge of that, that I got that wrong. So I want to make sure you knew. And that is something you can tell her next time you see her, that I corrected myself, okay? Because as I mentioned, she's in the Dominican Republic with the mission trip team. And uh, so if I seem a little tired today, maybe you understand a little bit of that. And you can pray for me. But I will tell you, First um, Samuel in particular is one of the most interesting uh, and powerful an incredibly well-told stories, I think, in all of the Bible. So if you have been following along in the reading plan with us, you have been reading through 1 Samuel and you have gotten near to the end by now. And uh, if you haven't been reading with us, I encourage you to pick up a Bible reading plan. I think there's at least one left in the table uh, in the four years you exit. We'll have a light blue cover. If not, go to fbckennedy.org slash Bible. And you'll find that Bible reading plan there. Each day we're reading out of the Old Testament, one chapter. One chapter out of the New Testament. And then we're reading one chapter out of either Psalms or Proverbs. We actually, this past week, just wrapped up reading through, through the book of Psalms the first time. Now we're starting in the book of Proverbs. And we'll repeat that uh, again as we uh, move towards the end of 2022. And a lot of what I've been doing is preaching out of the Old Testament. One, because uh, sometimes I feel a little guilty. I don't preach a lot out of the Old Testament. And there are some really powerful stories, and it really sets up what is to come in Jesus. It, it tells us about the creation that God has made, how that creation has been marred by sin. And throughout the Old Testament, you have the hope that one day someone will come 
who will make things right. And that one that is to come is, of course, Jesus. And so all of this is uh, a foreshadowing of what Christ is going to do and what not only will he do while he's on this earth, but what he's going to do after he has ascended to be with God the Father in heaven and what what he will one day do when he returns to set things right completely and forever. And we look forward to that day. But what we find here in Samuel is uh, the story of Samuel, who was uh, both a prophet and a judge, the final judge. If you remember when God's people came out of uh, the desert, having gone through the exodus in Egypt, they enter the promised land. And while they're in the promised land, they don't have one singular leader that expands uh, the course of the next 400 years. Of course, how could they? But they also don't have a dynasty, a kingdom. Uh, What they have are people who God raises up to judge the people to show them where they are wrong and the people listen and things get into good shape and then after that judge comes and goes and the people revert back to their old ways of sinning and 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 worshiping false gods and all this stuff and then god disciplines them because of that and experiencing their discipline they come to an understanding they have sinned they cry out to god and god sends another judge to help set things straight once again so you have this cycle going through judges samuel is a pivotal figure in all of this because Samuel comes along and he is the last judge and Israel asks Samuel for a king it's the first time God's people the Israelites would have a king and the scripture is clear that the people are rejecting God as their king they're not only rejecting Samuel as their judge and current leader but they're rejecting God as king and this breaks Samuel's heart He cries out to God, but God says, they ask for a king, they can have a king. I want you to tell them what a king will require of them. They're going to have to give up their their sons to battle. They're going to have to give up some of their crops. They're going to have to give up some of their their cattle. They're going to have to give up all this stuff. They're going to have to give up a lot of freedom under a king. Not only that, but Samuel will say in chapter 12, he says, "If if you rebel against me, if you and your king rebel against me, I'm going to tear it down. And the people said, but we want a king. We want to be like everybody else. And so God gives them a king. Now, who's the first king going to be? We know the second king. He's kind of the most famous of all of Israel's king, King David. We're going to talk about King David next week and for several weeks thereafter. But he wasn't the first king. The first king of Israel is Samuel. And we just read God's uh, word And Saul, where Samuel anoints Saul as the first king over Israel. And what I want to talk to you today is how it is possible to have a great start, but have a poor ending. And it doesn't really matter what phase it could be in your schooling. It could be a great start to high school or junior high or elementary. It could be a great start to... The workforce could be a great start with a family, getting married, having kids. Could be a great start to retirement. Could be a great start to anything. And a great start's important. It's helpful, right? But you also want to have a great ending. And of all the things I think we can learn from the first king over Israel is how to have a great start and a terrible ending. 
Sadly, that is the case with Saul. He is a tragic figure in the Old Testament. One who starts with a beautiful beginning and ends with a crash. And if I were to ask you that now and say, you know, would you want to model your life after Saul? Of course, we say, well, that's a no-brainer. No, I don't. I don't want to have a great start and a terrible ending to my school work, to my work life, to my marriage, to my parenting role. I don't want to have a great start and a terrible ending. In fact, if I had to choose, I'd rather have a slow, not so great start, but have a great ending, right? And I think there's something we can find in the story of Saul that will challenge us to think about that. What kind of ending to whatever phase or situation you find yourself in life, what kind of ending do you want to have? I'm sure in Saul's mind, in fact, I know from reading the story, Saul's great ending is him on his deathbed conferring the kingdom to his son, Jonathan. But if you read the story, that's not what happens. Sadly, his children and children's children do not get to lead Israel, are not part of that dynasty and that kingdom that God was willing to use to advance his plans in the world. So with all that said, let's pause, let's pray, and let's take a look at the beginning with Saul's good start. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word and how it speaks to us. God, uh, you are incredible how you inspire people to write the scriptures. You've woven these stories together. You bring them to life for us through your Holy Spirit. But God, we acknowledge these are not just good stories. They're not just events that happened in the history of Israel. Now they have something to say to us about how we live. So God, I just pray that you'd help us to open up our ears to hear how these How the story of Saul in particular intersects with our life and how we can learn a valuable lesson, heed a warning from his failure to end well. God, you soften our hearts to see how important it is to you to live faithfully unto you from start to finish. With our minds sharp and our hearts soft that we might leave this place hands and feet ready to do whatever is necessary to love you more, that we might live for you more faithfully. This is what we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, as I said, Saul has a great beginning to his kingdom. Uh, Some of it through no, no, uh, no credit to him. We find at the very beginning that Samuel anoints him and and pours oil over him and says, you're going to be king. And then we find out that the spirit of God is going to rest powerfully upon him. Whatever endeavor you are going to start out in life, you would take that. Wouldn't you? To know that you're entering into whatever phase of life, knowing that the power of the spirit of God is going to be with you. What an incredible comfort and blessing to know that Saul had that. The Spirit of God comes powerfully upon him multiple times throughout the early part of his story. 
Not only that, but we find that God is actually going to change him into a different person. Middle of verse 6. The person that I'm sure God always intended Saul to be, but he failed to live up to. And now God is shaping and forming him into that person that God desires for him to be. Again, something about that resonates with me. Don't you have a picture of who you want to be? Don't you know that you're not there yet? Wouldn't it be wonderful if God just shifted and changed you into that person today? Saul, in some way, experienced that. He's got the spirit, the power of God on him. He's been changed and he has a new heart. Verse 9, God changed Saul's heart. What he desired, what he wanted, his passions... And in fact, in Hebrew thought, the heart really encapsulated more than just feeling. It also encapsulated one's thinking and one's decision-making, one's will. I think probably just another way of saying God is changing Saul into the king he needed to be. So this this is good news. Saul is off to a great start. The first test of his kingship comes pretty early. He gets word that in verse or in uh, chapter 11 of 1 Samuel, he gets word that the Ammonites are going to battle against some of their people, Israel's people. And that tribe says, before you wipe us out, let us call for help amongst the rest of Israel. So this tribe asks for help from the rest of Israel, and it's not looking good. And Saul catches wind of this. And we read in chapter 11, verse 6, when Saul heard their words, their words, their cry for help from their fellow Israelites. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he burned with rage. Why? Because here these enemies of ours are coming against our people. And in fact, if you read the story, you find out that the only way that the enemy is going to make a deal with Israel is if, or with this tribe within Israel, is if that tribe, Jabesh Gilead, that tribe, would make a treaty on the condition that the enemy, the Ammonites, could gouge out their right eye of every one of them. This is why y'all got to read the Bible. I mean, this stuff's fascinating. I mean, come on. That's, that's, that may be a little, you know, graphic, but come on, that's, it's in the, there's a lot more than that, by the way. If you read the whole Samuel or the whole Bible, you know there's a lot more. But man, that's interesting. So Saul hears this. Here's this threat. These are our people. This is one of our tribes. He's infuriated. He takes a pair of oxen. He cuts them up to pieces. And he sends them out to everybody within Israel and says, listen, if you don't join me in battle against the Ammonites, this is what's going to happen to your oxen. So what do you think happened? He got some folks together who were willing to go to battle all of a sudden. Because what's an oxen? That's your livelihood. How are you going to till that soil without an oxen? And here the newly minted king is threatening to kill your oxen. Let's get on board. And they did. They sent out 300 plus thousand troops after Saul is willing to go to battle on behalf of one of their tribes. It is a great, great start. And in fact, it gets even better. Now, a little backstory here. Uh, it's kind of 
interesting. I try to think, well, I try to make sense of it. It's a little hard to make sense of, but so when, when Samuel gets everybody together and says, look, I anointed a king that God chose. They can't, and you know, it's a big assembly. Everybody's gathered together. Israel's tribes are gathered together. He says, look, God has chosen your king. I anointed him. And they say, well, where is he? We can't find him. Well, Saul, uh, uh, Saul had hidden himself among the supplies. Chapter 10, verse 22. That's a little embarrassing. God's anointed you king. And in some way, it was such a frightening thing that he goes and hides himself in the midst of this great assembly. Now, this is after God has changed his heart, changed his character, empowered him with the Holy Spirit. I'm not sure what to make of that other than, yeah, okay, well, I can identify that. God's done all that with me, and I still, I could see myself hiding amongst the supplies. Now, what happened is, is that Everybody was there. Everybody saw that. You can't really play that off, right? So everybody's like, so this is going to be our king, really? And in fact, we read at the end of chapter 10 in verse 27, some scoundrels, the Bible says, said, how can this fellow save us? Now, just one note here. One of the whole reasons they wanted a king is because they're under the pressure from the tribes around them. The Ammonites being one, the Philistines being uh, their arch enemy. So they are under some real pressure here from enemies all around them. And it's one of the big reasons that they ask for a king, perhaps the greatest reason. And so they're looking at this King Saul who's hiding in the supplies and they say, this guy, really? He's going to bail us out of this trouble? So the word of God says they despised him and brought him no gifts, which would have been a big thing back there. You get a king, you bring him a gift. The word of God says, but Saul kept silent. So Saul rebounds from that. Right after that, when the Ammonites come upon Jabesh Gilead, one of the tribes of Israel, he sends out the cut up oxen, he gathers the troops, they go to battle and they win. He rebounds quickly. This is great. Story's going really well so far, but it gets even better. 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 12, we read, The people then said to Samuel, Who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Who were all those jokers that weren't bringing gifts, that weren't bowing down, that weren't supportive of Saul? Who were those people? Turn these men over to us that we may put them to death. I mean, they're on that victory high, right? But listen to what Paul said, or, or listen to what Saul says. This is probably Saul's, I think, peak moment verse 13 of chapter 11 of first samuel but saul said no one will be put to death today for this day the lord has rescued israel he could have got back at his enemies he could have shown his power and his might he could have said look what i did but no he says no you're not killing anybody on behalf of me It was God who gave us this victory. This is by all accounts a great start to King Saul's kingship. 
But just as quickly and as high as he rose, his kingship begins to fall apart. And I think we have to ask the question, why? Why is it that someone who is that impressive a figure, a changed person, a new heart, the power of the Holy Spirit coming upon him, one who would not avenge those who did not speak well of him or follow him, one that would give credit to God, not take credit for himself after the victory had been won, How could someone like that fall, tumble, so low? Well, what happens? 1 Samuel chapter 13, again, they've got enemies all around. They're having to go to battle. They're having to fulfill what God had told them to do, which is you got to get everybody out of the promised land. Are you going to start worshiping their gods? You're going to intermarry with them and you're going to become just like them. And I didn't call you to be just like them. Called you to be distinct from them so that they may see you and know that your God is different than their God and they may seek me out. That is, in a nutshell, the story of what Israel is to be. It continues, as I said last week, to be our story as well. So Saul is fulfilling the command of God to move people out of the promised land. And that is going to have to come through battle. Saul goes to battle and he's waiting on Samuel. Samuel is still the prophet of God. Samuel is still the judge of God. Even though Saul holds the king. And he's waiting for Saul to show up to offer the offering. He's waiting for that support from God to manifest itself amongst the people as they're about to do battle with the Philistines. Waiting to seek the favor of God. That was Samuel's job. And Samuel was tardy that day. And Saul's looking around saying, Samuel's not here, Samuel's not here. What are we going to do? I'll do Samuel's job for him. I'll do the offering. So he offers the burnt offering to seek the Lord's favor that they may go into battle with God as their might that they would win the battle. Saul does that on behalf of Samuel. And then Samuel shows up. I think this might have been a test from God. Perhaps God delayed Samuel or Samuel got word from God that he should tarry a little bit. It's not not written out in the word of God, so that's a little bit of speculation. But Samuel shows up on the scene and he says this to Saul in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 13. He says, you have done a foolish thing. You You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. That will later be David. And appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Just like that. Saul's kingdom is over. 
We're going to find this to be a theme throughout Saul's story. The theme is the theme of fear. His theme is the theme of being not only fearful, but proud, paranoid, vengeful. All these things leading to disobedience. Saul had a great start. He falls just as quickly. And this is one of two events that really diminish him in a significant way. The second one just happens a little bit later, just a couple chapters past in 1 Samuel 15. God says, look, attack the Amalekites this time. Wipe them all out, including their, their animals. Eradicate them from the land. Now, let me put a pause there, okay? I've talked about this before because we can read this and we can have a hard time understanding why God would call Israel to annihilate a whole people. Uh, I even had a handout. I don't think, I don't know if there's any more left, but I'd be glad to hand it to you. Uh, And I don't want to go into that whole thing, but if you read it this week, perhaps it was on your mind. Uh, First of all, God is the only one that has the right to do that. You and I don't get to just go out and say, well, I don't like those people. Let's get rid of all of them. We didn't make life. We can't take life. That's God's job. That's God's call. He sets the parameters for that. Uh, Not only that, but the people that God is eradicating from the Holy Land are truly wicked and evil. I've said this before. Even to the point of sacrificing their own children to their gods. And God knows that if there's any of them left, Israel's going to get in bed with them, both literally and uh, figuratively speaking. And they're going to be carried off away from the one true God. So for all those reasons and and some more, God says you've got to get rid of all of them. Saul goes into battle. He does not destroy them all. He lets their king live. He does not destroy all their stuff. He takes the best of the land. And of course, who's going to know about that? Samuel. Samuel is still God's prophet and judge over Israel, even as Saul is now the king. This is disobedience before God. Why does he do this? God has made it so incredibly clear what he expects of Saul. And yet Saul does not follow through. What makes it worse is Saul basically lies to Samuel. In fact, when he he meets Samuel, what he says to Samuel is, Gives him a a hearty greeting. He says, I fulfilled all things that God has called me to do. I've done everything that he wanted me to do. But Samuel lied to Saul. Saul knew better than that. Verse 9, Saul of chapter 15, but but Saul and the army spared Agag. That was the king. And the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat of the calves and the lambs, everything that was good. They were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they just totally destroyed. But anything of value, the Bible's saying, they kept. 
Samuel gets word from God in verse 11. God says, I regret that I ever made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Once Samuel hears this, he heads to Saul, verse 12. He goes and finds that Saul is not where Saul was supposed to be at Caramel or where he was supposed to be. He had gone to Caramel. Why? To set up a monument in his own honor. When Saul finally reaches him, or when Samuel finally reaches Saul, Saul says to him, The Lord bless you. I've carried out all the Lord's instructions. Verse 13. Samuel says, Well, what is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? You're lying to me, is what he's saying. Saul says, the soldiers brought them, from the Amal- uh, brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle. Why? Perhaps this is another lie. To sacrifice to the Lord. But listen to what he says here. In verse 15 of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. To sacrifice to the Lord your God. You see some distance here between Saul and Samuel's God. Verse 16, Samuel says enough. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me. Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. Verse 19, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? And you got to give it to him. Saul sticks with his story. He says, but I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. I brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle and the plunder and the best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your Samuel, your God. Not our God, not my God. Samuel says, or Saul says, Samuel, your God. And this is Samuel's response to him. To obey is better than sacrifice. You can do all the most wonderful things in the name of God and yet disobey God. Isn't that something? You can read your Bible, you can pray, you can tithe, you can go to worship service, you can go to Bible study, you can serve. You can tell other people to do all those things and more. You can do a lot of wonderful things in the name of God and for God and yet be disobedient to God. That's the exact place that Saul finds himself. He ends this poetic saying with God has rejected you. As king. Maybe it took Saul hearing it twice, but it begins to sink in, I think, at this moment. Verse 24 of chapter 15. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Fearfulness, pride, Why could not Samuel find Saul? Because he's out 
erecting a monument to his own honor. What happened to God won the victory. And now it's Saul's honor. It doesn't get any better from here, folks. If you know the story, it doesn't get any better from here. David is eventually anointed as king. Saul tries to have David killed, tries to kill him himself multiple times, tries to have him killed. There's one egregious story where uh, Saul finds out that David is, uh, is in a particular area where the priests of God reside, and he goes to the priests of God and accuses them of being on David's side and has all the priests and all the priest's family and all the priest's stuff burned and killed. That's how far off he has fallen. It is quite an ugly ending to what was a great beginning. But fear, pride, somehow was still lodged in him. And by his own choices, overtook him. I think in a lot of ways it's easy for us to look at him and say, What an idiot! He had everything. He had literally everything one could hope for. Reminded of a story of a guy named John Bradford. Perhaps you know this story. He was an English reformer. uh, Lived in the early 1500s. Because of his testimony and his reformer views, his crimes against Queen Mary, he was put in the Tower of London as a prisoner, awaiting to be burned at the stake, which he would eventually undergo July 1st of 1555. From his tower, he could see people being led to to their death. Criminals, who actually deserved it, probably. John Bradford would look down on them, and yet he would not look down on them. And he would say these words. This is... uh, The story, at least. He would say, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. That's where we get the saying, there for the grace of God goes I. Maybe you've heard that before. It's tied to him. It's hard to track this kind of stuff down and know for certain. But it's worth keeping in mind when we think about Saul. Listen, y'all, he had the pedigree. Changed heart. New person. Spirit of God. Great, great victories to begin with, trusting the Lord, doing it for him, and yet he failed. Do you think you're different? One of the things that burdens my heart the most is why I see folks in ministry like myself fall. Uh, it's something that hurts so much. And yet God reminds me, don't think that can't be you. Don't underestimate the root of sin that is in our lives. Because it could be us. It could be you. You're not above making a few decisions that would unravel your life like that. Just as fast as Saul unraveled his life. That's the warning But here's the good news. 
God is gracious. Maybe you've already done that. Maybe you've done that a few times. Maybe you've already made some decisions like that that did pull your life apart. I hope that you know that God is a God of grace. Jesus came into this world for you, for people like you who who have blown it, for people like me who make mistakes every day. That's why he, he, see, he came knowing that. He did not come into the world for us thinking that we just need a few tweaks and we'll be just fine. He came knowing how deeply sinful we are. And I think if Saul had turned to God even at the end of his life, which he really did not, God would have shown him grace too, perhaps. I'm guessing at that. What I do know for sure is that with Jesus, the door is open. With Jesus, there is forgiveness. And that that helps us tremendously to know that when we've blown it, we can go to God. Because we see God's love for us on display through Jesus. But also embedded in the story of Christ is the warning. This is how much sin costs. It costs Saul at the first sign of disobedience, the kingdom. What does our sin cost us? Well, a lot of things, but we see in Jesus the highest price to pay for sin is nothing less than the blood of the Son of God. That is the price of sin. And yet God was willing to pay it. Jesus, God being God himself in the flesh, was willing to pay it. Let that be our warning that this is the cost of sin. And yet, let it also be our comfort to know that God was willing to pay that cost. That we might come to him when we do fail. Let's learn from Saul how destructive sin could be in our lives. But also know in the cross, no sin of ours has the final say. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you today, uh, each and every one of us, whether we're aware of it or not, sinners. Those who know what we should do and we don't. Those who know what we should not do, and yet we do it. We are all in this boat together. You know we are but dust, frail, and gripped by sin. Knowing all of that, you sent your son Jesus for us. Thank you, Father, for that. And I pray that if we don't know for a fact that all those sins are covered now and forever, every future sin covered by the blood of Jesus, that we would know it today. And perhaps we know that mentally, but we've made some mistakes here lately that have us questioning, does God really love me? Can he really forgive me? May God, we walk out of this place knowing for certain. That you hold your arms open wide to us, as open as Christ's arms were on the cross, welcoming us back into right standing with you. That you never reject us. In Jesus, we are your sons and daughters now and forever. However you speak to us, Father, I know your Holy Spirit speaks. Help us to respond as well. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.